0: The sun crept slowly over the horizon, turning the sky a blood red. Ichiro rubbed his eyes roughly, watching the birds circle overhead. Being the night sentry was a dreadfully boring job, and he could not wait to return to his cabin in an hour. Around him, the Kiyosumi Maru sat silently, a small metal peninsula of the lush green Caroline Islands. Ichiro lit a cigarette and inhaled, hoping the nicotine would be enough to keep him awake until his shift ended. Ichiro heard a strange noise in the distance. It sounded like an oncoming aircraft. Squinting, he could make out a handful of black dots over the horizon. He thought for a moment they were Japanese aircraft, but they flew far too close to the water. adrenaline surged through Ichiro's veins. Those were American bombers. Ichiro ran toward the bridge, beads of sweat forming on his brow. Someone had to be at the radio. Someone had to have seen this coming. But as sailors filled the deck, Ichiro noticed they all wore the same shocked expression he did as they ran to their battle stations. As the plane sounds grew louder in the distance, Ichiro stopped running. They were already too late. The sound of the engines was replaced with the roar of gunfire. Debris flew all around Ichiro. His crewmates hurled themselves to the deck to escape the deadly hail of bullets and shrapnel. Ichiro felt a horrible pain passing through his left side and he collapsed to the deck. Then, everything vanished in a flash of fire. Welcome to Haunted Places, a ParCast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted real places on Earth. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to Truck Lagoon, the final resting place of over 20 Japanese warships sunk during the Second World War, the largest graveyard of ships in the world. And discover why, to this day, it's haunted. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to Parcast.com slash merch for more information. Listen to more episodes of Haunted Places, as well as Parcast's other shows on Spotify or wherever else you listen to podcasts. A shallow body of water connecting the Caroline Islands in Micronesia, Truck Lagoon is clear, peaceful, and stunningly beautiful. And yet its clear blue waters are said to contain the bones of over 4,000 drowned sailors. Throughout history, the ownership of the Caroline Islands changed hands regularly. First colonized by the Spanish Empire in the early 1800s, The islands were then sold to the German Empire in 1899. Following Germany's defeat in World War I, the League of Nations handed over control of the islands to the Empire of Japan. During World War II, the Imperial Japanese Navy made Truck Lagoon their main base in the South Pacific Theater, as its geographic position made it an ideal forward base. At the time, it was considered among the most formidable naval bases in the world, housing thousands of battleships, aircraft carriers, and submarines anchored in the lagoon. It even briefly played host to the two largest battleships ever built, Yamato and Musashi. As the largest forward naval base for the Empire of Japan, Truck Lagoon was often called Japan's Pearl Harbor, a comparison that would only grow stronger in early 1944. On February 17, 1944, the United States initiated Operation Hailstone, an attack meant to devastate the Japanese naval power in the South Pacific. Due to intelligence acquired a week before the attack, much of the Japanese fleet abandoned the base at Truk. Those ships remaining were left to fend for themselves. During the air raid, American bombers sank 12 Japanese warships, 32 merchant ships, and destroyed 275 aircraft. After the attack, Truck Lagoon received hardly any naval support from the Empire of Japan. Its days as a powerful naval stronghold had come to an abrupt end. Toru took in a deep breath as he opened the hatch. After days cramped in the steel hull of their submersible, it was a relief to breathe fresh air once again. Even if they were only going ashore to resupply, it would be worth it just to be free of the stuffy cabin. Truck Lagoon was not as lively as it used to be. The airbases were barren, and the ships docked there were scattered and quiet. Toru was no military strategist, but it made a lot of sense to him that ships no longer visited here as regularly as they once did. The base was vulnerable, a shell of its former might. Though he claimed to be unafraid, Toru frequently glanced at the horizon, just to be sure. He would not be caught unawares, like so many of his countrymen had been earlier that year. It would be impossible for him to look at the surrounding islands and not imagine machine gunfire and bombs raining from the sky. Their commanding officer, Lieutenant Commander Shinohara, disembarked early in the morning, leaving his crew to load fresh supplies, assisted by local workers. Not an uncommon practice. But Toru felt a pang of jealousy as he watched the commander vanish among the huts to enjoy the hospitality of the locals. He shook his head and put the thought out of his mind. There was no sense in envying the commander. They were all working for the glory of the empire. That should be good enough for him. He opened the ventilators for the control room, letting the stale air seep out. At around 1100 hours, Toru heard a sound that made his blood run cold, an air raid siren. He was on the dock mere feet from a submersible. He turned to the nearest officer, a young lieutenant named Yoshio. Yoshio met his eyes with the same horrified expression Toru felt on his own face. Their submarine was completely exposed. There was only one thing they could do to escape the bombardment. A moment later, Yoshio yelled at the top of his lungs, dive, dive, dive. There was no going back for Commander Shinohara. Their first priority had to be the safety of their craft. Keeping their heads down, all crew members rushed to the vessel with practiced efficiency. Toru caught a glimpse of some frightened local workmen scrambling to join them inside the submarine. Toru sucked in his last mouthful of fresh air, and closed the hatch behind him. Everyone hurried through the dank, dark, and cramped corridors to their stations. The vessel began to submerge, the water rushing up against the sides with a dull metal splashing. Splashing that they shouldn't be able to hear from inside. Toru noticed, horrified, that the air raid siren was still just as loud as when the hatch was open he opened his mouth to warn Yoshio, but he never got the chance. Silence fell over the crew. They all heard it, the sound of water pouring into the hull. The ventilators in the control room were still open. In the rush to submerge, Tobru had forgotten to close them. They weren't submerging anymore. They were sinking. Sheer panic swept through the vessel like a current of electricity. Sailors and officers alike piled over each other to escape the seawater pouring in from the control room. Turu stood amidst the unfolding chaos. The tightly pressed bodies inside the cabin turned from a crew to a throng in a matter of moments. There was no bailing the water out. Some valiant crewmen attempted to access the emergency controls but they were pushed aside and swallowed by the churning, faceless mass of terrified men. Someone collided with Toru, knocking him to the floor. He landed with a splash in the ankle-deep water. Men thundered above him, officers yelling commands in a vain attempt to keep order. He looked to his left and saw one of the workmen strike his head on a console while attempting to join the tide of fleeing sailors. The man fell face first on the floor, and a dark red stain spread from his head wound. Another workman pounded against the side of the hull with his fists, wailing, as if he could single-handedly break through and swim to freedom. Toru could not tell if the man was wailing from despair or pain. Toru forced himself to his feet and started to run toward the flooding control room. He had to stop this. It was his fault. His feet dragged heavily as he fought his way against the current. The guilt in his stomach anchored him. No wave was going to push him over. It's my fault. I have to fix this. Suddenly, a hand seized Toru by the collar. An officer had seen him going the other way and pulled him away from the water. He swung his arms wildly, yelling at the man. He tried to explain he was not confused. He was trying to help, trying to stop the water. But no matter how desperately he pleaded to be let go, the officer's grip only tightened. Toru stared as the corridor behind him shrank, dark water circling it, like saliva in the gaping mouth of a sea monster. They were trapped. The compartment was sealed, Bodies pressed together, shoulder to shoulder, all breathing in heavy, ragged breaths. Toru saw Yoshio by the hatch, his uniform a bedraggled mess. The sailors sat in the dull red lights for what seemed like eternity, waiting. All their communication equipment had been flooded. If they opened the hatch to swim for safety, They would crowd each other in and drown. There was no way out. The silence was deafening. And with it, a realization passed through the crew, unspoken. They could hear no bombs, no muffled sounds of explosions. Toru collapsed against the inner hull, hands shaking uncontrollably. The air raid had been a false alarm. Not all casualties of Truck Lagoon were due to Operation Hailstone, one particular Kaidai-type submarine. A vessel that had participated in the attack on Pearl Harbor was in Truck Lagoon in April, two months after Operation Hailstone. Rumor of another air raid caused the crew to panic when their commander was ashore, and they submerged in a rush. When the air raid sirens ceased, the sub failed to resurface. In their hurry, they had forgotten to completely seal the control room, causing the cabin to flood. 75 members of her crew and nine officers found themselves trapped in a compartment as it sank. Divers were promptly sent to recover the trapped crew, finding the sub at the bottom of the lagoon, a banging coming from within her hull. Before a rescue attempt could be executed, the banging had stopped. All 84 men had asphyxiated. This submarine lies on the ocean floor to this day. It has been named the Shinohara after its commanding officer and sole survivor. But these poor 84 souls were not the only casualties claimed by the Shinohara. Since its rediscovery in 1972, many attempts have been made to recover the remains of its doomed crew. During one of these attempts, a Japanese diver drowned, joining the submarine's crew in a watery grave. Coming up, we'll see how the ghosts of Truck Lagoon persist to this very day. Now, back to the story. After the war, the Caroline Islands were surrendered by the Empire of Japan and became a trust territory of the United States. Some Japanese citizens remained on the islands, despite its new ownership. Many attempts were made over the years to recover the remains of sailors killed on the Truck Islands. But eventually, these attempts ceased. In 1969, famous oceanographer Jacques Cousteau documented his own exploration of the Truck Lagoon, prompting a new wave of interest in the long-abandoned shipwrecks. Soon, the Caroline Islands were teeming with wreck-diving enthusiasts and tourists, all of whom wanted a glimpse of the iron remains. But disturbing a grave always has consequences. Those individuals daring enough to explore the vacant hulls lying beneath the waves would often find themselves facing a rather gruesome welcoming party. Diego surveyed his surroundings, Everything around him was a brilliant blue. Aside from a few schools of fish, he appeared to be utterly alone in the waters of Truck Lagoon. Above him, he saw the keel of his boat bob in the gentle current, reassuringly stable. He would return to her soon. Diego turned his head down and kicked, propelling himself further into the murky waters. This was always his least favorite part of the dive, the moment of uncertainty when you're not sure you're even diving at the right spot. As he neared the ocean floor, uneven masses started looming from the darkness. Ships, scores of them lining the seabed, all covered in moss. Merchant and pleasure boats from decades ago, now almost indistinguishable from coral. This was no surprise. Diego had heard stories of the wrecks for ages. He was here for something much more particular. Soon enough, his target faded into view below him. A Japanese battleship, lying aside the merchant vessels, hull ripped open along the stern. Its once imposing sides were coated in algae and soft corals as if the sea was in the process of digesting them. Diego swam along the walkways of the decrepit warship, flashlights scanning the sides for a means of ingress. When he found none, he made his way toward the gaping hole in the ship's side. This would have to do. Diego reached into his ankle holster and drew a blade. While it was called a shark attack knife, Diego had never fought anything with it used it for more delicate work, specifically shaving rust off of ancient instruments without damaging the objects themselves. Japanese battleships were not known for carrying great hordes of treasure or forgotten relics. These were not pirates after all, but military vessels. However, Diego was certain that some relics of World War II would fetch a significant price for the right seller. Following the beam of his flashlight, Diego dove deeper and deeper into the bowels of the ship. Corridors pressed in around him, the green algae giving way to brown rust. Diego pulled his limbs in, careful not to scrape against any of the rusted metal. Tetanus was not an opponent he wished to deal with on this trip. As Diego swam even deeper, the darkness pressed down on top of him. The light from the surface was no longer visible. He switched on his flashlight and kept going. At the boiler room, Diego took a breath to gather his bearings. So far, he had been thoroughly disappointed. He had hoped to fill his pack with discarded shell casings, rusted firearms, maybe even a gold filling or two but everything he had encountered was nailed down or too large to transport. He would not return empty-handed. He could not. Diego placed his hand against the boiler to steady himself and recoiled almost immediately. The metal was hot to the touch. As he watched, the tank started to glow ever so slightly before his eyes, before darkening once again. Diego blinked and peered closer. It was just a normal boiler. He looked at it from top to bottom. Nothing special about it. Just as he was about to move on, a detail caught his eye. At the base, there was a skeletal human hand fused to the tank. He peered closer at the melted bones. Now so faint they might as well be irregularities in the warped metal. He traced his fingers along them, considering. Though his stomach turned at the concept, there were certainly ways he could turn a small profit off this piece of fused metal and bone. He raised his knife, working it around each digit, attempting to determine where the bone ended and the boiler began. The knife slipped, chipping off the tip of the middle finger. Diego watched as the bone drifted down into the darkness below, separating into shards as it did so. He cursed to himself, causing a flurry of bubbles to escape his breathing apparatus. Any attempt to remove these bones would result in them crumbling or splintering. It was not worth it. Diego's heart skipped a beat. He thought he heard, carried over the currents, the sound of a man laughing. A raucous, drink-fueled sound. Through the water, he could not tell where it was coming from. He looked around wildly, casting the beam of his flashlight in every direction. The laugh vanished as soon as it started, and there was only darkness everywhere he looked. Finally... His beam settled on the ceiling above him. An ancient skull was wedged perfectly in a sizable crack in the hull. The way its empty sockets seemed to look directly into Diego's eyes made him uneasy. As if in response to the laugh, the ship rumbled all around him, like the call of some great leviathan currents rushed all around Diego, who clutched a nearby ladder to keep from being swept away. His scuba mask was starting to fog. He had to surface soon, otherwise he wouldn't be able to see what he was doing. He didn't want to risk an accident. The next sound he heard was not laughing, and it was significantly closer. It was the sound of efficient, work-weary voices, some calling over others, some merely muttering amongst themselves, sailors going about their daily tasks with military efficiency. His flashlight flickered, making the whole room blink. He almost gasped at the brief loss of sight. And then his flashlight went out entirely. Diego was in the dark, gripping onto the ladder with his free hand. He clicked the flashlight again, and again. It would not light. Something grabbed his hand from the other side of the ladder. It was cold and rough, scraping against his skin harshly. He could not tell if it was a hand or a claw. Whatever it was, it was heavily coated in rust and brine like the ship around him. He jerked his hand away from the ladder without thinking and was left floating in darkness so thick he could not see the inside of his own scuba mask. Diego clutched his arms around his chest, fingers tightening around his knife. He was ready to strike at anything that bumped up against him, but nothing came. He floated there, blown in the blackness for what felt like an eternity. The voices returned, this time pressing in around him. The ship was teeming with life. The voices of sailors rushing to their battle stations, many sounding panicked, hopeless. The sound of men moments away from death. Diego's nerve failed. He dropped his knife and his equally useless flashlight. He flung his hands out blindly, reaching for the ladder that had been so close only moments before. When his fingers closed around the rusted metal, he almost laughed in relief. He gripped it and hauled himself hand over hand toward what he hoped was the light. He didn't know how long he was hauling himself through the pitch-black interior of the battleship. His limbs ached with the effort. And he felt the voices circling all around him, chanting, laughing, whimpering. It even sounded like some of them were encouraging him to let go and surrender to the abyss. Diego saw a glint of blue in the distance. He pulled himself towards it with all his might. As it grew, the voices around him faded drawing back into the ship around him. The blue was coming through the hatch. Diego did not even think before sliding his body through the narrow passageway. Diego had his torso and head through the porthole. When he got stuck, he wriggled furiously, trying to free himself from the ship's iron grip. He felt rusted, bony fingers grasping at his legs from beneath, he kicked furiously, but the thing's grip did not relinquish. If anything, he could feel it grow tighter around his legs. He scrabbled at the deck around him, trying to pull himself upward, but could not find any handholds. Finally, his hips popped free from the porthole, and he squeezed the rest of his body through, kicking as he went. The clawing skeletal grip dragged along his legs as he pulled them free, leaving burning red scratches along his thighs. When he finally withdrew his fins from the porthole, nothing followed him out. Diego turned and swam furiously toward the surface. Every part of his body was shaking from fear and adrenaline as he pumped his fins furiously behind him. He was going to return empty-handed, but he was grateful to be returning at all. As the light of the sun brightened above him, he looked back down once more at the ship beneath him. The ship was barely a phantom now, rendered transparent by the natural haze of seawater. One last time, he heard their voices echo in his ears, the sound rippling across the waves with a grim finality of a funeral dirge, until his dying day, he would never forget the sound of this ghastly chorus. The ghost fleet of Truck Lagoon is too vast to recover and contains almost as many human remains as it does boats, tanks, and pieces of decrepit military technology. The relatively clear and shallow water make it ideal for exploring, for those who are not easily frightened. While diving, a number of divers have reported hearing voices echo in the long abandoned vessels. They may belong to sailors on these ships, many of whom were caught completely unawares by the American attack, and are doomed to stay anchored to the ships they died within. When we return, we will hear another chilling tale from this undersea graveyard. Now, back to the story. In 1945, almost a year after the devastating attack on Truck Lagoon, the British Navy initiated Operation Inmate, a series of artillery strikes against what remained of the island stronghold. What was once the Imperial Navy's forward operating post, was reduced to target practice for the Allies when they wanted to make sure their armaments were prepared for a potential assault on Japan itself. The bombardment was a dreadful experience to those Japanese still stationed on the island. This late in the war, they were cut off from all friendly supply lines and, like many abandoned bases in the Pacific, faced starvation up until the end of the war. These feelings of despair and abandonment hang over the Caroline Islands to this day, despite their popular perception as a scenic tourist destination. Jasmine raised her camera, letting its flash illuminate the turquoise water surrounding her. Checking focus in scuba goggles was incredibly difficult, and she hoped these images would not be blurry. Beneath her, the hollowed-out hulls of several airplanes lay strewn across the seabed. She thought they looked strangely like a field of discarded peanut shells. Jasmine looked to her right to see Noelle, her wife, drifting alongside. She gave a double thumbs up. A smile crept its way onto Jasmine's lips. Like she had every day on her honeymoon, she asked herself, How have I gotten so lucky? She raised her camera and took a picture. Noelle turned away, dyed blonde hair swirling around her head like a cloud. She pointed further down toward one of the larger wrecks. Jasmine followed her gaze, and her heart nearly stopped. A Caribbean reef shark cruised lazily along the side of the ship, facing away from them. Jasmine nearly dropped her camera, but felt Noelle's hands on her shoulders, reassuring. Jasmine wished Noelle could hear her speak. She'd have quite a few things to say to her fearless companion. She knew that sharks were harmless unless provoked, but seeing one in person always made her nervous. Once the shark passed out of sight, they swam toward the wreck, Jasmine lagging a little behind Noelle. They passed an enormous cannon on the bow of the ship, so coated in brightly colored coral that it no longer looked like a weapon. Schools of fish hovered around the barrel, almost like they were imitating smoke from the weapon's last discharge. Soon, they reached the part of the dive Jasmine was dreading. The entranceway to the carrier. Its hatch hung open invitingly small fish passing in and out like tour groups. And yet, the darkness inside made her hesitate. She felt like she was staring at the entrance to her grave. Treading water above it, Noelle beckoned. She wanted to explore the innards of the ship, something that Jasmine was thoroughly reluctant to do. They had quite a few arguments on the subject while flying here, and Jasmine had finally conceded. After all, it was Noelle's honeymoon, too, not just her own. Jasmine swallowed her trepidation and followed her wife into the ship. The interior was much more accommodating than Jasmine expected. She was prepared for narrow corridors, barely large enough for a person to squeeze through, not the spacious hold they found themselves in. A school of blue-striped snappers scattered as she switched on her headlamp. Jasmine watched Noelle swim down toward the floor of the hold. Her flashlight beam landed on dozens of sunken automobiles, passenger cars and trucks, all Japanese manufactured. Noelle swam in between them and out of sight. Following her wife, Jasmine dropped down amongst these vehicles, eyes wide. She knew nothing about cars, but she loved how the older ones looked. She took out her camera and started searching the hold for the most compelling angles. Something was missing from her viewfinder. She looked up, heart pumping faster with each passing moment. Noel was gone. Jasmine looked all around the empty hold, headlamp following her gaze. She had to see something, anything, that would tell her she wasn't alone, even the barest glimpse of blonde hair but she saw nothing. Not only was Noelle gone, but the waters that had once been teeming with fish were now utterly empty of life. It was simply her, the water, and the cars. Jasmine let out a slow breath, the rising bubbles framing her vision. She was never any good at meditation, but Maybe controlling her breathing would help keep her from panicking. It's what Noelle would do. She made her way through the cars, her gaze searching upwards for the hatch. She would find Noelle soon, and they could surface together. They'd explored the hold enough. Jasmine started at the noise. It came from the vehicles beside her. They had started, idling. All around her, engines rumbled like they were just waiting for the hull to open and release them onto the streets. Twin beams of tungsten light blinded her for a moment. She turned toward the beams to see the twin headlights of one truck had switched on, pointed directly at her. As she blinked into it, she thought she could see the shadow of a man at the wheel, yelling furiously at her. But as he shouted, no bubbles issued from his mouth. She couldn't even make out what he was saying. But his expression was one of pure rage, eyes burning blackly out of his dark form. This person wanted to kill her. He wanted to run her over and feel her bones crunch beneath the ancient tires. The wheels of the truck shifted free from their resting place with a crack and it began to roll inexorably toward her. She could barely see through the light. She could barely hear through the endless blaring of the horn. Heart beating wildly, she planted her feet on a nearby tire and pushed herself out of the car's path. Jasmine's leg dragged against something rough, sending white-hot agony up her thigh. She hadn't been fast enough. The ancient rusted bumper of the car had struck her. She opened her eyes, blinking away tears of pain. When her vision cleared, everything around her was still. The car nearest to her was in its original position, headlights dim and passenger seat empty. Beside her, a chunk of coral floated lazily, some small scraps of skin clinging to its white surface. A pair of hands clutched Jasmine's shoulders, making her flinch. It was Noelle. Even through her scuba goggles, Jasmine could see the concern in her eyes. She looked down. Bright red tendrils of blood rose from a gash on her leg. Noelle swam toward her, signaling wildly at the ceiling Surface! Jasmine realized with horror what she meant. There were sharks nearby. An open wound was a dangerous thing. Noelle unbuckled Jasmine's camera strap and tied it tightly around her leg. The blood seeping from the wound lessened, but did not dissipate. Noelle looked her in the eyes and signaled once again, surface. The couple swam upward toward the hatch, staying as close as they could without kicking each other. Jasmine's movement was awkward, kicking with a single leg. Just as they reached the hatch, a large body passed by. A Caribbean reef shark. Jasmine gasped as the blue fin slid out of sight. It was moving faster than the first one they'd seen. It could smell her blood. She looked down at her leg and waved her hand by the wound, trying to disperse the red mist seeping out of her injury. When she looked up, she saw Noelle swimming back into the darkness, beckoning for her to follow. Her stomach dropped as she thought, she's trying to find another way out by going back into the haunted ship. Jasmine took a deep breath and followed her wife back into the hold. The shadows danced around them as their headlamps searched the hull for another hatch or tear in the middle. Jasmine thought she heard an engine sputter as she passed, and she let out an involuntary gasp. Whatever she did, she would not let Noelle leave her sight. Her leg was throbbing badly now. The coral injury felt more like a burn than a scrape. They found a gap in the hull, a big one, jagged metal peeling outward in the echo of some ancient torpedo strike. A current rippled over from behind. A chill ran down Jasmine's spine and she turned. A group of dark shadows shifted behind them. Rows upon rows of men, hands held limply at their sides. The darkness made it impossible to make out their features save for their eyes. Their eyes glittered from the blackness like wicked pearls in the dark. As she watched, one of the figures bared its teeth in a gruesome, taunting snarl. The others joined it, until all she could see in the hold was a sea of horrible faces. And among them, she thought she saw a glimpse of a wicked dorsal fin cutting through the blackness. Jasmine panicked and swam madly toward the opening, tearing past Noelle, no longer caring about the blood seeping from her injured leg. Her mind was a terrified storm of images. The shark, the darkness, and the blaze of headlights from a long abandoned automobile. This wreck was going to be the death of her. Jasmine's senses began to return to her as Noelle laid her on the deck and started to wrap her leg properly. She gasped and wheezed, shaking all over. In a sense, she had still not escaped. Her mind was still trapped in the dark water below, surrounded by scores of grim ghosts and worrying, monstrous machinery. The Caribbean reef sharks that populate the wrecks of Truck Lagoon are normally fairly docile and have a relatively low number of attacks on divers in the area, but like any shark, the smell of blood in the water can make them dangerously aggressive. Tourists enjoy controlled shark feedings in the area, a controversial activity, as some believe that feeding sharks regularly will encourage them to associate human beings with food. These sharks are often spotted alongside the largest wreck in Truck Lagoon, the Maru, former flagship of Vice Admiral Takagi commander of the Japanese submarine fleet. Near that is the Hoki Maru, a transport that contains a great number of commercial vehicles and automobiles. A number of divers and ghost hunters exploring the Hoki Maru have reported hearing engines of long-abandoned vehicles roar to life and idle without moving. Perhaps the spirits that inhabit this wreck are attempting some futile escape, driving their way out of their rusted iron prison. Truck Lagoon, a serene body of water perfectly suited for diving and summer tourism. Beneath its shimmering waves are the remains of thousands of sailors, victims of a war that treated them more as machines than as people. The rusted ships that lie in these shallow depths will stay there until their rust consumes them, and they will become unrecognizable from coral reefs. So when you visit Micronesia, pay a visit to Truck Lagoon. Dive beneath the waves to see the wreckage of history. Swim through the hulls of derelict battleships where men drowned and suffocated far from home. And maybe you'll hear one of them whisper to you. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram, at Parcast, and Twitter, at Parcast Network. I'll see you next week. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Kenny Hobbs. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Robert Teamstraw. I'm Greg Polson.